You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at lifemd.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Do you want to be the most popular person at an all-female dinner party? This podcast is for you. Do you want to be the least popular person at every other dinner party? <laughs> this podcast is for you. I'm Laura Bell Bundy. And I'm Shay Carter. We are partners in feminist crime. Welcome to Women of Tomorrow, a musical podcast that explores issues women are facing today. Just two women and one guest working to lower the high cost of equality one song at a time. We may not change your mind, but we will make you think. Out of the ashes of the 2016 presidential election came the most powerful women's movement since the 1970s. Women's voices raised in unity to express their fear over losing all they had fought for and their desire for equal rights. Hashtag me too. Our album of the same name, Women of Tomorrow, was inspired and written as a soundtrack to this powerful women's movement. As Nina Simone says, an artist's duty is to reflect the times, and we felt the creative calling to empower and educate women through our art. But our podcast, our podcast is where we get to deep dive into the issues that each song presents, like equal pay or over-apologizing, examine that issue's history, and have a discussion with a special guest or an expert and then discuss solutions for moving forward. You can only explore so much within a three minute and 30 second song. So we wanted to deep dive and do a podcast for you. In this first episode, we are digging deeper into our new song, Get It Girl You Go, which is about women getting a seat at the table, doing it all and breaking the glass ceiling. Coming up, we will be interviewing Amy McGrath, who is running for U.S. Senate in Kentucky against Mitch McConnell. Amy ah. is also in our music video, <laughs> along with um, all the female Democratic candidates running for major office in 2020. So you can check that out on YouTube. When Shay and I were writing this album with Jeremy Edelman, our partner, we were both at different points in our lives and having different experiences as women, which I think allowed us to give these subjects a broader perspective. 
the first song we ever wrote together, I was in the middle of a breakup. I was in an apartment littered in boxes. I was moving across the country. I felt so broken and so vulnerable. And I was six months pregnant. One is taking on the world as a single woman and the other is taking on this huge responsibility of bringing life into the world. Get It Girl You Go is about women who do it all. It's about breaking the glass ceiling, breaking gender norms. It was the first song that I wrote after I gave birth and it was really, really hard to write because I was experiencing the mental load, which was a new experience for me. There were all these new things on my mind that had never been on my mind before, like pump, freeze the milk, heat the milk. When did the baby last sleep? How long has that been? Grab that thing before I do the other thing so the baby doesn't cry or make sure the curtains are shut so the dogs don't bark before he's napping. And it was just all of that stuff. And when you are writing music, when you're writing anything, when you're an artist, you need to have room and space for inspiration. And there's not a lot of space in my brain. That's you. And I had moved to New York City with no friends. I have three weird jobs. I'm a waitress writing lyrics on receipts at like two o'clock in the morning and sending them to Laura. And so we were having these different, but yet so similar experiences. My hormones are all over the place. I'm wanting to freeze my eggs. I'm afraid I'm getting too old. Like we were coming at it from different places, but feeling the same thing, feeling that we're being pulled and stretched so thin and we're trying to do a really good job of everything. Bottom line is we were hustling, hustling, hustling. This song has a lot of imagery about motherhood. It also has imagery about working girls going out there and doing it all and fighting and taking to the streets to fight for what they believe is right. And I do believe that our personal lives came into play in terms of the imagery that this song paints, as well as I believe the rhythm, because the rhythm of this song is a breast pump. It definitely was the rhythm of a breast pump. There's footage of it too. I think there's like us singing and recording and you're just having to pause the pump when the mic is on. I got rid of those. You won't see those anywhere. They're in the, well, they're probably in recently deleted and somebody could get them out. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel Allende wrote, I can promise you that women working together, linked, informed, and educated can bring peace and prosperity to this forsaken planet. Women should be in power. We make up 50% of the population, but only 25% of the U.S. Senate seats are occupied by women, and only 23% of the U.S. House seats are occupied by women. Well, and only 37 of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Right, and that's the most that there has ever been. Which is crazy because women worldwide influence 80% of the purchase decisions. And that's not like household purchase decisions. That's purchase decisions. So ah, it doesn't make sense why we're not in these roles being represented. <laughs> right. We should be in power. You know, just by that statistic alone, women should have more positions of power. But here we are. We birth the human race. Perhaps our greatest power is also a double-edged sword because as we enter the workforce, many of us still hold the responsibility of domestic tasks and child rearing, and that impacts our productivity and our pay scale compared to men. It is hard to break the glass ceiling when you are too busy doing it all. And to kick off our show, 
Here is our new song recently released on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. Get It Girl You Go featuring Anika Nani Rose and Shoshana Bean. She should know her place Few years later frames another degree Filling up her C-cup getting vitamin D Took the baby to the dock Was almost late For the big presentation that would pave the way Made some noise so that the boys they heard what she had to say And dinner's on the table spite a long ass day Bought a baby girl an airplane and a son a dog No agenda with your gender Gotta learn to do it all Hey, hey, she came to play Oh, oh, get out of her way Thank you, mama. Thank you, friend. I got front row seats to watch the queen ascend. Baby, how you feeling? Breaking that glass ceiling. Time to run the world, we're taking over this place. Welcome to the future, it was worth the wait. Strike it, light it, you'll ignite it. Get it, girl, you go. No lies, no shame, girl, that's your name that everybody knows. You take the high. She's running for the Senate on the side. Gun control, climate change, freedom of press. Next up, the president of the U.S. Hey, hey, she came to play. Oh, oh, get out of her way. Using her freedom, using her voice. When God says free will, she means choice. Baby, how you feeling? Breaking that glass ceiling. Serving up valor, serving up praise. That makes America great Strike it, ride it, let on fight it Get it, girl, you go No lies, no shame, girl That's your name that everybody knows You take the high road Get it, girl, you go to do it all because of the women that came before us and fought for those rights and for those freedoms. 
It is so easy to take for granted the fact that we can get an education and own property and vote and take our little birth control pill in the morning and plan a family and choose to get married or not to get married. But those rights and those freedoms, those were hard fought for. And some women were arrested and some even died so that you could have those freedoms that you enjoy today. Yeah, that equality was not easy to come by. So I think it's important that as we're talking about empowerment, we understand a bit of our history and and we appreciate the women that came before us and paved the way. So here's a little bit of a brief historical timeline. Until the Married Women's Property Act in 1848, a woman could not own property in her own name or control her own earnings or have sole ownerships of gifts she received. And if her husband died, that woman couldn't be the guardian to their underage children. I I mean, that shit is like Handmaid's Tale. You can't even get, you can't even receive your own gifts. Mm -mm. (laughs) No. It's ridiculous. (laughs) And Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was partly responsible for this act, also proposed a woman's right to vote in 1848 at the first National Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls. It was agreed to after an impassioned argument from Frederick Douglass. And then that began an over 100 year fight for women's right to vote. We can't forget that women's suffrage was actually born out of the abolitionist movement. And there were black suffragists and they were just as equally a part of this fight. However, white women were the only ones granted the vote in 1920 and women of color had to wait until 1965 to get the right to vote, which came on the heels of Selma and um, the civil rights movement. I keep thinking about women of color and how even more impossible so many of of these things seemed. And I think about Ida B. Wells and how she was born into slavery. Her parents die young. She's 16. She's educating herself. She's raising her younger siblings. And she still figures out how to run a publication. She has her own newspaper. She, like, changes the laws on lynching. She does all of this. I mean, I can't find the time and I don't have any kids and I have all these modern luxuries. Then she starts, I think it was in Chicago, she starts the Association of Colored Women in 1890. Their motto is lifting as we climb, which I feel like is a motto that you and I are living and doing right now. We're trying to lift up other women. We're trying to work with other women. We're trying to bring women together on this podcast and on this album as we all climb for equality. And I just feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm learning about all these women that I knew a little bit about peripherally, but I don't think I gave them the honor of really understanding their stories until we were deep into writing this album. Totally. And we can't ignore that there is intersectionality when we are talking about women's rights and that all of these rights and these freedoms are harder for women of color and far more complicated than they are for white women. And that is the bottom line. So there was a group of women who felt that suffrage and women getting the right to vote was going to be the key to women having more control over their lives. But there was another group who felt that women would have the most freedom if they were able to control the amount of children that they were having and properly plan a family by having access to birth control, which was illegal at the time. We're not we're not talking about the pill. I I mean, we're talking about any form of birth control. The pill didn't even exist until the late 1950s. This is the birth control movement of the early 1900s. And this was like any birth, like any form of birth control, like diaphragms, condoms, like all of that stuff. 
illegal. Yeah, I mean, these women didn't even know what a uterus was, what ovaries were, and there was like no information about your cycle. You, you had no information on how to not get pregnant. So at this time, none of this information was available to women. And women would get married and not have any control over the amount of kids that they were having. They were having eight, nine kids, and their doctors would say, uh, if you have another one, you're going to die. I mean, women were like using borax and Lysol as as like possible ways to have abortions. There was lots of back alley abortions happening and lots of women getting close to death because of them. And, and there were very poor families that weren't able to feed the children that they had. And a very controversial figure, Margaret Sanger, was a part of this group that really believed that birth control was going to liberate women and give women the ability to plan a family. So she founded the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is now Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger created a pamphlet about the female reproductive system, and she sent it through the mail. And that was considered illegal by the Comstock laws to print materials about uh, a woman's female reproductive system. It was considered profanity. And she was charged with, I think it was around 20 years, and she fled to Europe. Actually, Margaret Sanger smuggled over diaphragms from Denmark and Europe that uh, were sewn into the hem of her friend's dress. And at the time, in the early 1900s uh, and late 1800s, you could get a condom, but it really only the wealthy people could afford it because it was the equivalent of $1,000 today. And it was one condom and you had to wash it out. Yeah, sanitary and pleasurable. <laughs> so it wasn't until 1965 that the birth control pill became legal. And at this time, it was only legal for married couples and married women. It wasn't until 1972 that the birth control pill became legal for unmarried women. And that's when women really joined the workforce in droves, making the two-income household more of the norm. And at the time, universities were accepting women but before that, not all universities and higher education institutions were accepting women. And now more women graduate college than men. Hey. Hey. <laughs> also, this one blew my mind. It wasn't until 1974 that women finally won the right to open a credit card or get a home loan without the signature of their husband or their fathers. So this was this was a big change for women to be more independent and to, to choose a career and maybe wait to get married. Right. You imagine like you're having to get the permission of your dad or your husband just to have some sort of financial freedom. That's definitely... To build any kind of credit. Yeah. I mean, to have to build a life for yourself. So there's not a lot of choices. And when that change happened, it really opened things up. There were two other changes that happened after that that allowed us to really get a seat at the table. And um, of course, this is something that we still struggle with today, getting a seat at the table um, while we're, you know, balancing family and work. But it was the Pregnancy and Discrimination Act prohibited employers from treating a woman unfavorably because of childbirth, pregnancy, or any medical condition related to pregnancy. That was in 1978. And then in 1993, the Family and Medical Leave Act required the 12 weeks of unpaid leave annually for mothers of newborns. Um, by the way, that's unpaid leave. <laughs> yeah, unpaid oh, is God. the important part to hear in that um, So, you know, this is maternity leave. And um, and I think that that was 1993, guys, 1993. Before, when I didn't know the history, 
I just assumed that it's always been this way, that the rights that I have when I wake up in the morning are what it's always been. And I think doing this album, and you're such an incredible historian, and you know so much about women's history, I've learned so much, and I've had such a respect and an admiration for the women that came before me that had to blaze this trail that now I'm following. And speaking of laws and rules being changed, let's talk about our guest, Amy McGrath. So the Combat Exclusion Law was repealed by an act of Congress in 1991, and it was Bill Clinton in the spring of 1993 who directed the Department of Defense to open up combat jobs for women in the military, including aircraft carriers and combat fighter jets. And that made room for our guest, Amy McGrath. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Amy McGrath is a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who is running for U.S. Senate in Kentucky. Amy grew up in Northern Kentucky and graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy. She became the first woman in the Marine Corps to fly a combat mission in an F-18 fighter jet. During her 20 years as a Marine, she served three combat tours overseas as a congressional fellow advising a senior member of the House Army Services Committee on Defense and Foreign Policy. She went on to serve in the Pentagon as Marine Corps liaison to the State Department. Amy now lives in Georgetown, Kentucky with her husband, Eric, a retired Navy pilot, and their three children, Teddy, George, and Ellie. Please welcome Amy McGrath. Hey, good to be with you. Talk about someone who has broken the glass ceiling. How did it feel to be the first woman to fly an F-A-18 in a combat mission? <laughs> well, to be honest with you, um, the, the mission that I did when I became the woman, the, the first woman to do it in the Marine Corps, at least in F-18s, uh, I didn't even know. Uh, we were, so, I mean, you're so, this was right after 9-11, we got deployed to Kyrgyzstan, which is just north of Afghanistan. Um, and we were so busy, my, my squadron was so busy, and I was a junior member of my squadron, and I was just trying to like work, work hard, and make sure that I was, you know, being a good air crew, being a good weapons officer, being a good aviator. Um, and I didn't even know that, you know, I that this sort of ceiling or whatever you want to call it had been broken until I got back to the ready room and a few in a ready tent. And a few, it was actually a few days later when one of the guys in my squadron said, Hey, I, I think you're the first woman to ever do this. You know? And I wow. said, I said, really? And, and, uh, and then we all thought about it and there weren't any other women that other women were, that were in the Marine Corps and aviation um, hadn't been deployed in that capacity yet. And, you know, look, it's just being sort of in the right place at the right time for me. Um, I could have been any of the other women who were, were my, um, uh, fellow aviators at the time who could have done it. And it's, I certainly wouldn't have been able to do it if it weren't for, um, frankly, members of Congress who were women who changed the law, who forced change and forced the military uh, to open up those jobs to women. I heard a story that you had written into your like local congressman as a kid, or maybe it was a senator about wanting to be a fighter pilot and you weren't allowed to be because you were a girl. 
Yeah, that's right. I was, I was about 12 years old when I had this dream. And um, I learned very quickly that there were no women doing what I wanted to do, which was to become a carrier uh, fighter pilot on aircraft carriers. Um, there were women flying fighter jets, but they yeah. couldn't be deployed. They couldn't go to combat because mm. of this law. And therefore, the Navy and the Marine Corps in particular wouldn't even train women because what why would you train a woman who couldn't if you can't by use law, her, yeah. go to right so why would you spend millions and millions of dollars and therefore we were basically banned from it and so I was 12 years old and I didn't understand that I remember going to my mom and dad saying well you know you all taught me um, that I could be anything I wanted to be and I'm good enough yeah you know I know I can do this and let's just change the law I mean just mom what's a law <laughs> change it. And my mother and father had to sit me down and say, okay, let's give you a little civics lesson. You know, you can't change the law, but you can advocate for change. And that's what Congress does with the president. And if you want change, you have to write your member of Congress. And so that's what I did. I wrote him. Um, he was a pretty conservative guy. Mm-hmm. And he wrote me back an interesting letter, which uh, says, essentially, if you read between the lines, uh, you're a girl, go do something else. Uh, and uh, But I didn't quit. I wrote my senator. And of, of course, my senator was Mitch McConnell back then, um, believe it or not. Uh, he never wrote me back. But um, I didn't quit. I wrote every member of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, um, asking wow. them to change the law. I was 12, 13 years old. And I got several letters back that were just like my congressman's. And mm-hmm. I then I got other letters back that said, you know, our military exists to fight and win the nation's wars. And we should have the best people in those positions. And if you're good enough, you ought to be able to compete. And you ought to be able to be given a shot to get in that cockpit. And that is all I ever wanted. And I got lucky because at the age of 17, we had an election that year. We elected more women to Congress than ever before in history. And they made change. They changed that law. And they, um, Bill Clinton and President Clinton opened up uh, those jobs for women. And I was leaving Kentucky, uh, going to the Naval Academy, and all the doors were open to me. So, you know, I got lucky. That's so amazing. I'm wondering what toys did you play with as a kid? I wish that was even in my in in my viewpoint. I was like, teacher, nurse. Uh. I, I was very much a tomboy. I had an older brother and an older sister, but I was at that age, I was probably closer to my older brother. He was two years older than me. And um, you know, I was a sports person. I, mm-hmm. I was very good at sports. Um, and I was beating all the boys in sports. And I had this older brother who was two years older than me. So I played with him, which made me even better. Um, and I just I didn't like pink. I didn't like dolls. I was just a total tomboy. But you know, my mother, um, she didn't judge me. And she, um, in her, her own way, um, allowed me to be who I am. And that was so important to me as I look back on that now. And and not only that, but my mother was a practicing a medical doctor. And she went to medical school in the 1960s at the University of Kentucky. She was one of the first women to graduate from the University of Kentucky Medical School. And so she went into a profession where there was mostly men. And so when I came to her with this sort of crazy dream to be a fighter pilot, my mother looked at me and said, you can do that. Yep, mm-hmm. you can do that. You know, and that that sort of there there was no like gender stereotype, no judgment there. And I think that really made a difference for me. 
Um, I have a, a four-year-old girl right now, and she uh, is nothing like me. She loves pink, and she's into dolls and makeup. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, are you my daughter? But, um, but I'll tell you a quick story about how just how we parent matters, uh, I think. And I'm, and I'm saying this from the perspective of I need to do better myself. I was driving my kids home from school last year, and I have an eight-year-old son and a six-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And I'm driving all three of them home from school. And we got into traffic so that the younger ones actually fell asleep on the way home. And my oldest one, he and I just started talking. And I said, Teddy, what do you what do you think you want to be when you grow up? And he said, Mom, I want to be um, a policeman. I said, Oh, that's good. That's a good job. Public servant. You know, that's you're really brave to be a policeman. I said, What do you think George is going to be? George is my six year old. He said, Oh, I think George is going to be a fireman, Mom. I think he's going to be a fireman. I said, Oh, that's that's good. That's a good public service job. And I said, you know, I, I said to Teddy, I said, But you know. Have you ever thought about fighter pilot? Because, you know, that is a really cool job, Teddy, a fighter pilot. And Teddy, without one uh, moment's hesitation, said to me, no, mom, that's what Ellie's going to be. Oh, you know, and I and I look back in the rearview mirror and it, there was just nothing there, but just no kidding. And yeah. I thought to myself, yeah. Also hearing about how your mother was so supportive and without hesitation um, heard your ambition and and just saw you as a person that was capable instead of um, a gender. And I was wondering, I've wondered this a lot about, I've, I've never served in the military and I've and it's always seemed like a boys club to me from an outside perspective. And I've wondered how women in the military together find community and support and, and build each other up. And you even mentioned that you were the first, but it could have been anybody that you were, you know, in school with that were also pilots. So did you have a good community of women that you felt like? Um, I, there were units that I did. Um, mm-hmm. So at the Naval Academy, I was a women's soccer player. I played division one soccer and the women's soccer team was just this, this little sorority in the midst of this huge fraternity. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And then I went into the Marine Corps <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the, the, I was quite often the only woman in my unit or one of maybe two or three. So um, for those few of us that were in the unit, you know, we, we certainly um, bonded. We, we had to bond. We, we, we basically lived together in combat. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I think it's, it's harder because there were so few of us Yeah, and it, you, it is a boys club and it is a locker room mentality. I mean, you go into a fighter squadron, you know, it was, it was at first in the first part of my career. I mean, it was very much a, a locker room mentality and I accepted that, you know, I accepted things that would probably not be acceptable today because I was just trying to fit in. I had no leverage because I was a junior officer. I was still trying to get my qualifications. So I was going to take just about anything. Um, but what, what I loved about the military was that antics aside and locker room mentality aside, I'll tell you what, they, what people really care about at the end of the day. Can you fly the plane? Mm-hmm. Can you drop the bomb on time? Are you competent? Are you going to have, you know, my back if I'm, 
in, in extremis, if I'm getting shot at, if we get shot down, are you somebody I can count on? You know, that's what they care about. And those traits are not gender dependent. Oh, no. Those traits, you know, when you go through survival school, you see you see who you really are and you see who the other people around you really are. And it has nothing to do with gender. And so those are the types of things over time that that really matter. Wow. Yeah, I was I've always been curious about that. And, and how that must feel. But you're right. Like if you can get the job done and when you're in a situation and it's life and death, you're looking at the people that can get the job done. And I think that would shed a lot of natural gender biases. I feel like you would yeah. come out of it, that being family. Exactly. And one of the things that we've learned in the military in, in the integration of women is that not only is it not gender dependent, but it's also not dependent on your race. It's not dependent on who you love. It's not dependent on anything other than your character Mm -hmm. and your competence, you know, and your integrity and the things that, that matter, um, that that are the basic traits of leadership that we were taught, you know, way back when at the Naval Academy, um, those are the things that really matter in the military. And that's, you know, that's what I loved about it. Do you have any advice for other women who are going into fields that are primarily dominated by men like the military or dare I say, running for Senate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, there is no substitute for hard work and there is no substitute for excellence. So if you are excellent at what you do, there's, it's, it's, it's a lot harder for people to, to, you know, want to put you down or want to keep you down. You know, one of the things I learned in the military was that I may have been the only woman in my unit, but because I worked so hard and because I I feel like, and I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I feel like I was a very competent uh, aviator and a competent officer and somebody that people could count on. Um, I always strive to be excellent. And that made people want to serve with me. And it made people want to um, help me get promoted help me get to the higher ranks, help me become an even better officer. And that goes a long way. You know, when you have, when you're going into a field of all men, you know, there are really, men are out there, a lot of them, then they really want to help you um, move forward, especially if they see that you are somebody who is like a go-getter and it's just out there. And, and I had a lot of men in my life, um, higher ranking officers and some peers of mine, who really reached out and and tried to mentor me, um, tried to help me, and also were tough on me, who would would pull me aside and tell me, "Hey, you need to get better at this," you know, and and that's that's also something that um, you know you really need to have to uh, to be successful. You need to you need to be a, a somebody that is willing to take criticism and get better and recognize that you got to get better every single day. I was wondering too, I was listening to um, an interview you did where you were talking about when you were called in and you were going to be deployed and you were going to fly that fighter jet and they told you to man up. And I was just wondering of how you feel about some of those terms like man up and wingman. If you were ever like womaning up right now, but I'll, I'll let you say it. Well, does that thing ever bother you or are you just like, I know what you mean. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm down for the cause. Yeah. I think it's 
it's about 50 50. Some of them are, are just so traditional and you, totally. you just kind of like, I get it, but some of them really mean something. So let me give you an example that the, the um, the motto of the the United States Veterans Affairs is um, "He who born the battle." So basically, um, it, you're taking care of of he who born the battle, meaning that was a phrase from Abraham Lincoln, and mm-hmm. it was you know after the Civil War where our country got together and and decided that the veterans of the Civil War would be taken care of to some extent, you know. And um, the, there's been a push on the legislative side in our government to, to end with women in the military to change that, um, to say, you know, um, they who born the battle or something that is more, you know, gender neutral. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to that because it's very traditional. It came from Abraham Lincoln. But at the same time, if you keep that, you know, you're sort of discounting a whole group of Americans who fought and died including yeah. some of my friends um, and, or who mm-hmm. fought in on our veterans today, including many of my friends. So I, I just feel like we have to have some of these discussions. There's a yeah. time and a place for tradition and that's important. And I personally feel this is just Amy talking that if we change that, we're not disparaging Abraham Lincoln at all. You know, we're not, we're not doing that. We're actually adapting to the reality of the forces and the veterans that we have today. And I think that shows maturity. Yeah, I also think it's honoring what he said while still honoring how far we've come and where we are now. And I think instead of always thinking that we're just discounting the past, I think we're adding to the past and we're getting better. So it's important to, I think it's a really beautiful thing to have these these things combined and to see that, that we have growth and to take part of his words and then adapt to things that no longer serve us. Just like we have to amend the Constitution. We adapt it and we amend it to work for us. That's right. And here we are. We're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment because women deserve the right to vote because the Constitution is supposed to serve the people, right? We have to look at these things and see if they are still serving us. Speaking of serving, you are a mother of three. You are doing it all. We have this lyric in our song, Mama Cheers Are On, Beaming With Pride While She's Running For The Senate On The Side. I feel like we wrote this song for you, and I am very curious why you decided to run for Senate, and how has it been doing that and doing it all? <laughs> well, some people say, ask me, you know, what's harder, being a fighter pilot or running for Senate? And my response is, I'm a mother of three small kids, and that's like harder than either two. Um, it really is. Uh, my kids don't listen like Marines do. They don't. They don't listen and do what I, I tell them to do, like a, an aircraft does, for the most part. Um, and you know, running running for Senate or, or really running for any office or going into politics. I, politics is just people. That's all it is. It's just it's just people. Um, it, it's a hard thing to do because um, it's so polarized right now. And of course, if you're me and you decide to take on, you know, the so-called Grim Reaper, uh, the, the, the man who has single-handedly destroyed our Senate, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult. But I also look at uh, the other difficult things I've done in my life and, and, and I try to stack them up. And I thought to myself, you know, I could do this, this, and this, and this. I can do this. I mean, if, if the one thing that, you know, that I'll tell you, 
2016, when we elected who we elected as commander in chief, you know, my feeling is, geez, if he can do that, I can do this. You know, I mean, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it really, really did um, make me take a step back and be like, you don't, you don't need to be, you know, um, somebody who wins the Nobel Peace Prize to run for Senate. Um, and I actually think right now we need w- one, we need more veterans, but we need more women. Yes. We need more moms. We need more Tam Duckworths out there, you know, um, who are advocating for um, women in the military, for veterans, for our, our, our but also for, for women. Um, I, you know, and because we get it. I mean, universal pre-K, you know, these are just policies that not only are smart, but like if we had even 50% representation of women in the Senate, they'd probably be done yesterday. Yeah. You know, we only have a 25%, I think, in, in Congress right now, women. That's just, you know, we're, we're not there yet. And we have 100 years since we voted, but we're not at the table the way we need to be at the table. Um, and, and, that, and that extends to all kinds of policies, like uh, equal pay for equal work. You know, um, before the Affordable Care Act, there was not a single insurer in Kentucky that would cover maternity care. Think about that. You know, you know how expensive it is to have a, a child, and and gosh, if you have complications, it's even worse. Not a single insurer before the Affordable Care Act, you know. So we passed legislation that actually really helps women, and it's only by having women, you know, there, yeah, exactly. at the table, you know. So it's to me, it's um, it's kind of a no brainer. And when I see this, the current administration, it's it's like I see these rooms of all men deciding on policies for women. And I'm just like, come on. Um, you know, we need some representation and I don't want to do it forever. Um, I, I, that's why I like term limits. Nobody should be in Congress for 42 years. And that's who my opponent is. And that's where he wants to be, you know, and I, I just happen to believe that Kentucky and you know, this um, has a lot of, of problems that we need to face um, and that haven't been addressed in his, his 36 years in Congress, and that really we need somebody to represent us who's not bought off by the special interest groups. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. Um, and with coronavirus, I mean, anybody that thinks the leadership of our country, that where we have 180,000 Americans dead, uh, more Americans are dying every day than, than we had during the height of World War II, you know, uh, and the economy where it's at, it hasn't been this bad since the Great Depression. Anybody that, and by the way, we have one of the worst trajectories in the world when it comes to um, mitigating this coronavirus and, and tackling it. And anybody that thinks that the leadership that we have right now um, is doing a good job should I mean, expect I have more. Their, ought to have <laughs> yeah. their head examined because I mean we yeah. are we are just in Kentucky. We're having a lot of problems, and I just feel like we. We own currently, unfortunately, the senator who's who's really at the heart of not doing what our country needs right now. Just to reiterate, the senator you are running against is Senator Mitch McConnell. Who I heard 90% of his campaign finances are from special interest groups and have been for all of these years. So that's a big, that's a, that's a lot of money to come up against. And I've seen that in your campaign, like your average donation, I think is $35. That doesn't come along with, uh, with 
you know, anything else. That's just a donation because people believe in better government. So I, I feel like you are really somebody that stands behind the things that you're saying and is, is very trustworthy. And I, I appreciate that so much. Um, I also read a statistic, 47% of women in Kentucky experience sexual violence. Um, and it, it does feel like we need women legislation to protect women, especially in these states where women are being attacked. 40, 47%. Wow. It's every yeah, other woman. It's in, in Kentucky has a very high rate of that. Um, you know, and when you think about the policies that could help mitigate some of this, like the Violence Against Women Act, which is held up by Mitch McConnell yeah. right now. Um, these, these are, what that does is the Violence Against Women Act helps, ha- has the federal government help um, rape crisis centers and things like that. Um, and it helps give women representation, uh, legal representation and things like that. It just, it, it, these are good, these are good acts. These are good programs. These are, are trying to tackle some of these, uh, real problems that we have. And of course it's held up and it's about priorities. You know, the man will stay up uh, late at night over time to pass, pass tax cuts for his buddies. Uh, but doesn't, pass basic legislation doesn't even allow some of this basic legislation to even go to the floor of the Senate. Um, so yeah, it, it very much impacts women, not only in Kentucky, but uh, nationwide. Um, I have another question for you that I think is really interesting. Um, you're, you're running in a conservative state as a Democrat and you're married to a Republican. And I think more than ever, we need to figure out a way to communicate with mm-hmm people from different political parties. There's such a divide and we have a, such a difficult time even befriending somebody that's a different political party. How do you guys discuss politics in a peaceful way? Well, you know, I think, so for Eric and I, for my husband and I, we, we don't define ourselves by our political party. We define ourselves by being Americans. And, you know, I always say to people, look, I'm a Democrat and I'm proud of that. I'll tell you what, I'm an American first. And for Eric, he's a Republican and he's proud of that. He's an American first. And I feel like we, we've got to get back to that. Um, we've got to get back to people who literally do want to go to Washington and say, okay, what is the mission? You know, the mission is to fix healthcare. The mission is to never go through a pandemic like this again. The mission is to, you know, tackle um, racial inequality in this country, whatever that mission is, and try to um, find policies that we can all agree on uh, and move us forward. I'll give you a couple of examples. Prescription drug prices. Okay. 90% of Americans want prescription drug prices to go down. In Kentucky, this is a really big issue um, because we have the second highest per capita spending on prescription medications in the country. Um, there are six bipartisan bills that passed the House that Mitch McConnell just won't allow a debate on the floor of the Senate. Now, I think this even this current president would sign probably any one of those bills because it's been on his platform to get prescription drug prices down, mm-hmm. but he can't get there because Mitch McConnell is bought off by a special bought off by big pharma. big pharma. He gets the most money from big pharma than any member of Congress last year, last cycle. So it's not rocket science. You just got to follow the money. Um, but that, that is like a bipartisan thing that we can do. You know, it's just, to me, it's, it's about getting um, back to representing your state. Uh, I'll give you another example, the trade war. I mean, Mitch McConnell was a guy who used to be for free trade, you know, used to be for, for those, but until, 
until the member of his party, who happens to now be commander in chief, started this this trade war. Well, that trade war really hurts Kentucky. Yeah, it hurts our bourbon industry. It hurts our lumber industry. It hurts the soybean farmers. And what have we gotten out of it? Really, nothing. You know, and he has been incapable of standing up for his state. You know, because of the partisanship. And so, what I'm trying to say to people is, look, I will work with anybody whether they wear a red jersey or a blue jersey, to do what's right for Kentucky. Okay? And at the same time, I will have the guts to stand up to anybody, whether they have wear a red jersey or a blue jersey, when it comes to doing what's right for Kentucky. And we don't have a whole lot of those politicians anymore. And that's and it, and it frustrates people um, sometimes because we're so partisan right now. But that is really what I want to do. I want to do what's right for Kentucky. We have a lot of problems on healthcare. We've got to fix. We have a lot of problems when it comes to good quality jobs. Our wages are some of the lowest in the nation um, that we have to tackle. And that's what, at the end of the day, this is, this is what it's got to be about. So when you speak to people who are on the other side of the party line, you go in talking about the common ground, right? I think that there are people who are conservative who need this help, like lower prescription drug costs and our farmers or in manufacturing who are deeply affected by the decisions that the government is making for them. And they don't see that they're actually getting government assistance and all that assistance was actually set up by Democrats. So there's sometimes a misunderstanding of what your party does for you and what your party takes away from you. And I'm curious how you approach this with people who think that they would never vote for a Democrat. Yeah, I think it, there's a lot of misunderstanding. It's not a little, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it, and a, a lot of that has been, a place like Kentucky has been fed by Mitch McConnell. I mean, he is a man who's always had a ton more money than his opponents. He's always been able to lie. He's always been able to have the resources to, to pump in that message that is just, I mean, let's just say it, they're flat out lies. He's been doing it for decades and the the challenge in a place like Kentucky is, you know, Democrats don't really invest as much, you know, at, at a national level, and in, in the same way that you know Mitch McConnell has really just owned the Republican Party there and has been able to just pound away on these this misinformation for years and years and years. So that's a big challenge. But there are some things that that we all agree on. The term limits is, I mean, I say that no matter where I go, people clap. And, you know, people do get that, that, that may even be in the Republican platform. I don't know. I have to read it, but I mean, it's, it, it's real, but I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, there are some things that like, I try to say to people, look, especially to Republicans is McConnell has stopped allowing the very body of our government that is supposed to deliberate and hash out our differences from working. I always say, look, the minimum wage is what it is right now, okay? And um, Shay, you may think the minimum wage should be seven twenty-five, and you might think it should be ten, and maybe I think it should be fifteen, and maybe somebody else thinks it should be twenty. But guess what? It doesn't even matter because we can't debate any of this stuff because Mitch McConnell will not allow debate on this issue on the Senate floor. So we're going nowhere as long as he is there. You know, he is laughingly saying, I get to decide what we what we debate. You know, I get to decide what goes to the floor. Well, that's inflaming all sides. 
because he has stopped our government from working. Most Americans believe we should raise the minimum wage. So let's debate about where it should be. Well, we can't. And, and so when I talk to my, you know, fellow Kentuckians who happen to be Republicans, I say, you know, let's just let democracy work. You know, we've got a senator who says, you know, that this will, he calls the HR one and and things like that, a a liberal agenda. Well, that's just getting people to vote. That's allowing people to vote. I mean, come on. It's, it's just the talking points over and over again from him. Um, And if you really dig a little bit deeper, it's just basic democracy that we're, we're trying to, at least what I'm trying to do is expand on. Stop it from being stifled. Like we only, we only get to a higher place if we can communicate and even just being able to debate something on the Senate floor and have different great minds come with different perspectives. Like that's the only way we're going to get anywhere. And if that's stifled, then. That's right. I mean, most people believe that Medicare should be able to negotiate drug prices that that law was enacted under the Bush era, Bush two, uh, for a specific purpose. And we now look at it 20 years later and we say, it didn't, it didn't work. Let's change it. And most people think that that should be changed, but we can't do it because he won't allow it to the floor of the Senate. So it's just like, it's crazy. Most people believe in, in, um, uh, better background checks for, for, for weapons that, you know, you should have, uh, that we should close the loopholes. Something like 90% of Americans think this. We can't get it done. It's a perfect example. You own a gun, right? You own I a do. gun. Yeah. Right? I actually think this is an interesting thing for you to say to someone. Hey, I own a gun. I also know how to use it. That's the difference. And you want background checks as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty basic. We want to make sure that um, weapons don't get in the hands of of terrorists, of people who, who come here and, and can, I mean, think about the Pensacola shooting uh, at, at the uh, Naval Air Station. You know, the, the, the Saudi um, guys were, were able to come here and just get a, get a license and, you know, go buy one at Walmart or whatever. I mean, I just feel like there should be some basic stuff here. And most, uh, most of us gun owners uh, believe that, you know, that we're not, I always tell people I'm never out to take your, your guns away. You know, I've got my own. I don't need it. Amy, thank you so much for being here with us. We so appreciate your time and your service to our country and the powerful woman that you are. And can you tell people how they can support you? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of ways. Um, first of all, you can volunteer from anywhere around this country. So if you're stuck at home because of coronavirus or something like that, um, you can you can still make phone calls and texting for this campaign. Um, you know, I'm biased, but I think it's the most important race in the country. And uh, because if we can get rid of Mitch McConnell, as I said, we can change the trajectory of our country and our democracy for the better um, and make our country really start and our government start to work again. Uh, and so um, that's how you can support. You can also go on my website, amymcgrath.com, um, and you can support you know, financially, we have um, an enormous amount of people around the country. And as was mentioned earlier, uh, you know, every little bit helps to be able to go up against somebody that gets most of his money from special interests. It's going to have to be regular Americans to step up and say, you know, I'm going to give 20 bucks to Amy's campaign. Um, If you don't like me, pick another Senate race. 
you know, and just do, do 20 bucks or whatever you can do, because, you know, this is our country. And I think for the first time for me, um, yes, I, I served in the military, but I wasn't really my whole adult life. I wasn't super into politics. I had never contributed to a political campaign ever before uh, my own. <laughs> and I have and, and I don't say that to be I, I'm actually saying that to, to, to tell people um, I wish I would have done more. Mm-hmm. I should have been doing more. Voting is important. It's your right and it's an important part of citizenship, but also supporting in any way you can to candidates, to races that matter, because our government is ours. Mm-hmm. But we have to we have to to influence it and get there with the support um, that we know we're going against those entities like special interests that have it just a ton of resources. So the rest of us have to have to try to step up and, and do our part. And that's that's what I'm trying to do here and running against Mitch. Well, I believe you. in you. I think you're an incredible candidate and I feel so honored that we got to talk to you. I think you are just an extraordinary example of a woman and a mom. You are the shit that makes America great. Great. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I don't know. We want to tell my six-year-old that he's the. Uh, sometimes he doesn't. He doesn't quite understand. Is he the one that goes by the Dark Knight? <laughs> he is. He is. Although the other night he, um, I, I kissed him goodnight on the cheek, and he. And he goes like this and he, he starts rubbing it. And I said, Oh, George, are, are you rubbing my, my kiss off? You know? And he looked at me very confused. He he said, no, mom, I'm rubbing it in. And I thought, okay, okay. I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) cry. So he's, he's in a, he's in a great phase right now. I hope, uh, I hope he keeps this lovable phase. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much. God, I hope you get it. We're very close right now. It's never been easier to vote in Kentucky. You can vote. You can request your ballot um, tomorrow uh, and get a mail-in ballot. And so we're doing everything we can. I am behind you. And so is my Republican mother. (laughs) Thank you, Amy McGrath. Love your hair. Hope you win. No, really. Hope you win. If you want to support Amy McGrath's campaign, you can find a link to donate in the show notes of this episode. And you should, because right now, women only occupy 25% of the Senate seats. And we're 50% of the population, so our voices need to be heard. We need to occupy more, guys. Thank you guys for listening, especially if you're a dude. We really appreciate you. And if you're a woman, we want to leave you with this message. We've talked a lot about the rights and the freedoms that women enjoy today. And the women that came before us fought for. So when you're thinking about whether or not you're going to make the time to vote, Think about those women who fought for those rights for you. Some died, some gave up their reputations, their families, so you could get into that voting booth. So honor their legacy and vote. You can register to vote today. You can become a poll worker. You can mail in your ballot, whatever you got to do. But use your voice because your voice matters. I'm Shay Carter. You can follow me at Shay Shay Carter on Instagram. I'm Laura Bell Bundy, and you can follow me at, at Laura Bell Bundy on Instagram. And you can get Get It Girl You Go on Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon, and our video on YouTube featuring lots of Broadway stars. Send it to a woman who inspires you, and get a girl, you go. 
Mama cheers her on, gleaming with pride while she's running for the Senate on the side. Gun control, climate change, freedom of press. Next up, the president of the U.S. Hey, hey, she came to play. Oh, oh, get out of her way. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.